much you'd speak about today, and he gave me a big yellow taxi. He's a good God, isn't he? Yeah, sometimes you just want a letter from God, you know, clear print, nothing obscure. Um, but he gave me this big yellow taxi. Um, you might remember the song, I think it was back about 1970 or so, Hank, is that right? Uh, by uh, Johnny Mitchell. Uh, she flew into Hawaii uh, late at night, uh, got into a hotel room, uh, woke up in the morning, opened the drapes, uh, and there in the distance, beautiful forested mountains uh, of Hawaii. Paradise, she thought. And as her eyes dropped, uh, she saw this carbuncle, uh, this enormous expanse of concrete uh, where they were making a parking lot. And so the words came to her uh, that they've paved paradise and put up a parking lot. And then the refrain, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. You know, that happened a long time ago. The Lord made paradise here on earth for man, the Garden of Eden. Uh, and because of man's sins, well, look at it now. It's pretty much paved over uh, in so many places. Um, but you know, there's a new world order coming. A heavenly one, a godly one. There's a godly reset coming <laughs> where he's going to restore all things, make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth and restore paradise uh, to us. And that's why we see the work of the enemy uh, as a counterfeit at this present time. Uh, the enemy is trying to have a new world order um, and to have his form of paradise, which is really uh, dystopia. Um, just bring up that next slide. <clears throat> I'm going to talk really about um, the exile of the people of God into um, Babylon. Babylon, really metaphorically, a place of evil, uh, a place where uh, the abhorrence of humanity is at its uh, utter worst. And we see this kind of um, cycle uh, going on. If you read through the Bible, uh, particularly throughout the whole of the Old Testament, uh, we see this cycle going where, you know, uh, people are in love with Yahweh, they're serving Yahweh, the, uh, the Israelites are at one with the Lord. Uh, and then something happens. They begin to disobey the Lord. Uh, they wax and wane in their devotion to him. Uh, they begin to chase after other gods. Um, God sends prophets to warn the people uh, that they need to get their eyes fixed back on the Lord. Um, but oftentimes they don't. Uh, and then God brings a judgment upon them. Uh, during that period, they come to their senses and they repent. Um, and from the place of repentance, uh, we see a renewal of covenant. They come back into relationship. God brings them back into relationship. And things are wonderful for a little while. And then this tragic cycle continues. If you read through the Old Testament, you would know that this is the case again and again and again. So we're going to look at really probably what is the golden years of uh, the people of Israel uh, under King David uh, and then his son uh, Solomon. So we're going to go back almost 3,000 years. Um, doesn't seem too relevant for today, but look, it is uh, because, you know, history repeats. Uh, and we don't seem to learn the lessons. Israel never did. They kept going around this tragic cycle. Um, if we go back to about uh, 970 to 930 BC, a time of uh, Solomon, it was the glory days of Israel. 
David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, <clears throat> but because of he was a man of war, the Lord said, no, let it fall upon your son, Solomon. Um, so it was down to Solomon uh, to, uh, to build a temple. Uh, Solomon asked for wisdom and, uh, and also gained great wealth. He did lots of building projects, primarily uh, built the temple of God, where the Ark of the Covenant uh, was placed in the Holy of Holies, uh, where the presence of God came and dwelt between the seraphim and the cherubim. The glory of God was in the temple, and his presence was with the people of God. He had lots of other building projects. He built a palace for himself, um, the city walls of Jerusalem, uh, fortified cities. He had something like um, 12,000 horses, about 1,400 chariots. Uh, um, he had 700 wives. I can in the gates what I've just said about wisdom. One is more than enough. It's, it's not the wives, it's the mother-in-laws. That's the <clears throat> I, I'm going to go and see mine in a few weeks' time. I've got to be good. Um, he was also a prolific writer. Um, he wrote um, 300 proverbs, um, over 1,000 songs. Um, he wrote the Song of Songs, of course. Uh, he wrote the Book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and the nation of Israel was at its height. It was at its zenith. These were the glory days of the people of God. But hey-ho... They didn't last. And now, a lot of the marriages that he had were um, strategic marriages, of course. He married uh, wives from other nations, uh, and that brought great wealth. It brought territory. Um, uh, it brought status and so on. But with foreign wives came foreign gods. Uh, and before long, uh, we see the kingdom of Israel dividing uh, into two. Uh, so as you know, if you read something of the Old Testament, it uh, became a northern kingdom of ten tribes and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom capital was Samaria, and the southern one, of course, was in Jerusalem. Uh, and slowly but surely, the affection for Yahweh waned in the people, and they began to worship foreign gods. And they didn't know what they had until suddenly it was gone. About 200 years um, after Solomon's reign, uh, we see the northern territory being taken by the Assyrians and taken off into captivity. And then about 100 years after that, we see uh, King Nebuchadnezzar laying siege to Jerusalem. Uh, the siege lasted well, the best part of two years. Um, people in Jerusalem ended up in cannibalism, such was the a state of uh, famine and desperation within the city. Uh, and finally, Jerusalem fell. That would be a title for a good movie, eh? With Gerard Butler, maybe. Jerusalem has fallen. Oh, you can see it now, Hank. Yeah, the music script's going through your head. Jerusalem has fallen. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar uh, marched off with, in about three stages, but marched off with the people of um, Judah. Took them into Babylon. Um, so what went so terribly wrong? Well, in John fourteen fifteen, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, dictionary 
talks about love as being a feeling of warmth, a feeling of intimacy, a strong liking for someone or something to take pleasure in. Uh, but really, biblical love is just a little bit different. Uh, the Bible relates love for God as obedience to him. If we love him, then we trust him. If we trust him, then we'll obey him. Um, but the people of God here at this time in history chose to love another. They fell into uh, idolatry, but indeed also adultery. Uh, they danced around um, Asherah poles, which may have been uh, trees, uh, or they may have been uh, chiseled into, into like a totem pole affair. Um, these were uh, given over to uh, the sacrifice um, and worship of uh, the uh, false god um, Asherah. Uh, in other parts or other regions, uh, the name is Ishtar. If you remember a number of weeks back, Darren talked about this. Uh, Jonathan Khan released a book, uh, Return of the Gods, talks in great detail. Really encourage you to try and get hold of a copy of that. Uh, it'll put what's happening today in the world into um, uh, a light which you'll understand. They sacrificed their children uh, to Molech. They brought sacrifices uh, to Baal. And so God, after warning them at some length, um, particularly with his prophet Jeremiah, let's read a little bit of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, 4 to 9. <clears throat> The Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet... Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, he calls him, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. Pretty clear warning, which sadly they ignored. And so after almost two years of uh, siege, uh, the people are taken into Babylon journey of about 700 miles. Many died on the way. Um, worse still, perhaps, the temple uh, of the Lord was uh, raised to the ground, pillaged uh, of its goods, um, and the, those items were taken into Babylon. And then here, after that long journey, uh, as they settled into their new life in Babylon, uh, Jeremiah pens this lamentable psalm. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they replied, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I was tempted to have Boney M playing in the background thought better of it, <clears> thought <throat> so I won't get back on track. It's a terrible, terrible lament. Boney M sing it in a very cheery way, which is not helpful. Um, but it's lamentable. This was a lamentable condition that they found themselves in. In the space of just a few generations to go from that incredible glory place 
where the presence of God was in the temple uh, to suddenly being away from the Lord, away from the home, and living as slaves. If you remember back uh, before that when people were taken out of uh, Egypt uh, and they're wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, a whole generation apart from Joshua and Caleb perished in the wilderness, didn't see the promised land. And now here in Babylon, another whole generation, perhaps two, um, are away from the promised land. 70 years they were in captivity in Babylon. These people didn't know what they had lost until suddenly it was gone. You know, God's chosen people, they didn't weep when the Asherah poles were erected. They should have. They didn't weep when the altars of Baal were erected. That would have been a time to weep. God asked me to preach because I'm the weakest among you. (laughs) You know, if he can use me, he can use you. They didn't even weep when they took their children and laid them at the feet of Molech and saw them consumed in the fire. They should have wept then. But now, in Babylon, they weep. They didn't know what they'd lost until it was gone. But why do they weep now? Are they weeping now because they've lost their home, consumed by fire, or lost some of their wives or their children, or their crops or their land? Are they weeping because of their nation? Are they weeping because they've lost their culture? They were now made to um, speak Aramaic, uh, a foreign language for them. Hebrew, of course, their national tongue. Perhaps, though, as we read the psalm, it says they wept, not as they remembered Jerusalem, but as they remembered Zion. Suddenly, they weep for the presence of God. Suddenly they weep for the holy temple. Suddenly they weep for the holy hill. Suddenly they weep because they're now separated from the presence of Yahweh. Suddenly they realize that the glory of the Lord had departed. They lost his presence, and with that, his favor, uh, his protection. There's nothing like the presence of the Lord. It is a great and it is a terrible thing. Many times in Scripture, we read of uh, people who experience the presence of God. Oftentimes, they wish they were dead. Paul, as we read earlier in Revelation at the beginning of the service, he was as dead. He was one who was as dead before the Lord. We read in Isaiah in chapter 6, Isaiah has this uh, vision. He's taken up into uh, heaven, and he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him 
stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Such is the impact of being in the presence of of the Lord God Almighty. I often think we have these days a very poor view of God. Been to many churches and they talk about making Jesus your friend. It seems clear to me that the spirit of the Antichrist is trying to exile the church of Jesus Christ now here in this society, in this world today to push her out. Those same demonic forces that were responsible uh, for luring the Israelites away from the worship of Yahweh are active today to push the Christian church into exile or at least obscurity. I mentioned uh, Ishtar. Um, She was the fertility uh, deity renowned for her obscene ritualistic uh, prostitution, illicit sex. Um, She had transgender priests who would march before her in procession, said to be the mother of Baal, who drew away the affections of God's people. Today, that same spirit is active in our society. That same spirit is being given legal status in our governments, lifted up in our media, worshipped in our centers of education, and being praised in our society and embedded into our culture. Prophets have been uh, pronouncing for a long time the need to come back to God and to repent and not to accommodate uh, the false gods and their vile ways. But some churches are fearful to cause offense. It seems we would rather offend God than man. Must we wait until we're in exile before we lament the state of religion in our nation? Must we wait until our captors torment us and say mockingly, sing the songs of Zion before we again set our affections properly upon the Lord? I think it's true to say, largely speaking, that we have lost the fear of the Lord. Solomon said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and we must regain the fear of the Lord. Will we look back on this period and realize that the church stopped preaching about the fear of the Lord 
We stopped preaching about sin. We stopped preaching about judgment. Hell was banished from our pulpits, replaced only with love, grace, acceptance, inclusivity, hate that word, and accommodation. Was not Satan in the very first instance that says, surely you will not really die? We need to get back to some old-fashioned preaching, yeah? I recently reread uh, Jonathan Edwards' um, I was going to say famous, for some it's famous, uh, for some it's infamous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. July the 8th, 1741, Edward stood up in a church in Enfield in New England, east coast of the States. As an awakening was beginning in the churches there, Enfield, however, had resisted the move of God and had remained cold and detached. They did not remain that way for long as Edwards told them of the horrors of hell. This is what he said. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. Boy, that's preaching. <clears throat> Such was the impact of his preaching that the people listening shrieked and cried out, and the crying and weeping became so loud that Edward, Edwards was forced to discontinue the sermon. Instead, the pastors went down among the people and prayed with them in groups. Many came to a saving knowledge of Christ that day. Revival broke out. You know, Jesus talked about hell more than any other person. Oftentimes, you know, in church, we grew up with this sense that Jesus, meek and mild, he's, got, he's a shepherd, he's got his little sheep. and He's just such a loving person. Of course, God is love. But we forget to mention justice. We forget to mention the consequence of sin. Jesus talked about hell in Luke 16, calling it a great chasm over which none may cross from there to us. In Matthew 15, he tells of a time when people will be separated into two groups, one entering into his presence, the other banished to eternal fire. He says it's a place of eternal torment, of unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. I bet there they'll be singing Johnny Mitchell's song. <laughs> We don't know what we had until it had gone. A place of no return. He calls hell a place of outer darkness, comparing it to Gehenna, uh, which was a rubbish dump outside of Jerusalem, uh, where the rubbish was burned and where maggots abounded. Jesus did not shrink back from preaching about hell. But in the last few decades, the church worldwide uh, has been somewhat quiet on the subject. 
So many churches preach a message that we're living a life away from God and that our life would be so much better if we just allow Jesus to come in uh, and be our friend. But the fact of the matter is that the souls of mankind are in a grave and a perilous condition. Scripture is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there are no exceptions. That we are all sinners. That the wages of sin is death. And it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Such is the condition of man. That we are sinners, that we will die, that we will be judged. And there is no escape from the eternal fires of hell. Except there is one who came from heaven, sent of God. who did not love his own life that much, but gave it up for you and for me to die in our place, to take the full wrath of God upon himself as he hung upon the cross and became sin for us. And that whoever calls upon his name shall surely be saved. Saved from the fire of hell. Saved from eternal banishment and brought into his loving arms forever and forever. That's the gospel message that we have and that we must preach in this day. Talked a bit about revival this last wee while. I want to just talk a little bit about revival now. <clears throat> revival is defined as the that which was dead coming back to life. You know, personal revival is, is not increasing our quiet time, reading more of the Bible, praying a bit more, coming to more meetings. Those are good things, but that's not revival. Personal revival is coming face to face with God. It's having an encounter with the glorious presence of the Almighty. It will be life-changing. It cannot be otherwise. How many churches are there that no longer have the presence of God in them? Oh, they look like a church from the outside. They've got a fancy name. You come in and there's pews and there's uh, hymns up on the, the wall. They have a pulpit. They may have an open Bible. But where is his presence that's why we find the remnant of Israel in Babylon weeping as they remember Zion when they think back to the glory days where God was in the house. Only the high priest once a year was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And he had a great deal of preparation before he went in there. You and I have the luxury because of Christ's death to enter into his presence whenever we desire. Do you desire? Many churches today uh, around the nation have modeled themselves on some of the successful churches 
They buy the same sound systems, they've got the same lighting systems, they've got the same smoke machines, they've got the same programs, t-shirts, baseball caps, catchphrases, logos, and think that they too will be successful. But how successful are the successful churches? By what measure are we measuring success? By the size of the congregation? The income? How much the real estate is worth? Which ones have the glory of God in them? Which ones have congregations that are ready to lay down their lives for the Lord? Let me tell you this from the heart that I weep for Zion that I long to be back in the place where his presence is all-consuming. Been in lots of meetings, been saved for um, 34 years. Lots of times, sung songs, listened to messages, prayed, taking communion, had little touches from God, enjoyed the worship. <clears throat> Being moved to tears, but when you're in a meeting and you cannot stand because of his presence, when you dare not breathe because the Holy One has entered the house, when the perfect one comes and there's nowhere to hide, and all you can do, like Isaiah, is cry out, Woe is me! I'm undone then suddenly you're no longer a lukewarm Christian ticking the box on a Sunday morning. I've experienced something of that in Toronto back in 1998 where the Shekinah glory of God, the weight of his presence was so profound that I could not stand in the church. I was there for a week. I think about by the third day I wasn't able to walk into the church upright. I had to literally crawl in on my belly because the weight of God's presence was so profound. I didn't have the strength. That's going back a few years. So as a young man, I didn't have the strength to stand in his presence, and I tried. I thought people would be laughing at me as I crawled into the church until I got to the middle of the floor and realized that's where the congregation were also. <laughs> they preceded me in on their bellies. And we lay there for hours in his presence. Not desiring to speak. Just in his awesome glory. That's what I long for. We talk for a few moments about something that happened reasonably close to my hometown. Uh, the Welsh Revival, 1904. At a morning meeting which Evan Roberts attended, the evangelist Seth Joshua uh, was preaching. In one of his petitions, he prayed that the Lord would bend us. The Spirit seemed to say to Evan Roberts, that's what you need to be bent. And thus he describes his experience. I felt a living force coming into my bosom 
this leading of the Spirit grew and grew, and I was almost bursting. I fell on my knees with my arms over the seat in front of me, and the tears and perspiration flowed freely. I thought blood was gushing forth. The congregation sang, I hear your welcome voice. And as they sang, I thought about the bending at the judgment day. And I was filled with compassion for those that would have to be bent on that day. And I wept. Within a year, 100,000 people had been converted to Christ in Wales. A couple of years later, 312 Azusa Street, Los Angeles, the Holy Spirit came upon a small group of believers in a small, dilapidated building, 18 meters by 12 meters, uh, with planks of wood nailed to empty nail kegs as pews. They were pestered by flies from the horses that used to be stabled there. But such was the presence of God that as many as 1,500 people would try to cram themselves into that building to experience the glory of the Lord. They didn't, didn't have a fancy building with fancy lights and fancy smoke machines and fancy logos and fancy baseball caps. God help us. Okay. It's going to get real now. I'm going to talk about Scotland. 1952. Long before my birth. That's all right. Always, always take a hanky to preach the gospel. Reverend Don, Don, uh, Duncan Campbell uh, was invited to come to preach in the island of Lewis. There were two dear old ladies in the church, 82 and 84 sisters. One was blind, one was disabled. They weren't able to continue to come to the building. So they decided to pray. The lament of this state of religion on the islands and in Scotland and in the nations. They said, Lord, you must send revival. And they prayed and prayed and prayed. One of them had a vision of this chap called Duncan Campbell. Didn't know him. But they found out something about him. And they, they called to him and said, you must come. And so this man came to an island off the coast, the west coast of Scotland, an island called Lewis. This is the description of the revival. In revival, God moves in the district. Suddenly the community becomes God-conscious. The Spirit of God grips men and women in such a way that even work is given up as people give themselves to waiting upon God. In the midst of the Lewis awakening, the parish minister wrote, The Spirit of the Lord was resting wonderfully on the different townships of the region. His presence was in the homes of the people, on the meadow and on the moorland, and even on the public roads. This presence of God is the supreme characteristic of a God-sent revival. Of the hundreds who found Jesus Christ during this time, fully 75% were saved before they came near a meeting or even heard a sermon. The power of God, the Spirit of God was moving in operation and the fear of God 
gripped the souls of men. I have to read this short extract from the revival. The next night, buses came from the four corners of the island, crowding the church. Seven men were being driven to the meeting in a butcher's truck when suddenly the Spirit of God fell upon them in great conviction and all were converted before they reached the church. As Duncan preached, a wave of conviction swept over the congregation. Cries were heard all over the place. Hardened sinners were saved. Just as the meeting was closing at four o'clock in the morning. You know, we used to be there. We used to have half nights of prayer in Scotland. From six o'clock till midnight. And at two o'clock in the morning, suddenly, I said to my wife, we, we have to go home. <laughs> I'm getting up in three hours to go flying a helicopter. We need to go. Time, time stood still. Time was, is meaningless in the presence of the Lord. Four o'clock in the morning, someone hurried up to the preacher, very excited. Come with me. There's a crowd of people outside the police station. They are weeping and in an awful distress. We don't know what's wrong with them, but they are calling for someone to come and pray with them. Describing the scenes outside the police station, a minister declared, I saw a sight I never thought was possible, something I shall never forget. Under the starlit sky, men and women were kneeling everywhere. By the roadside, outside the cottages, even behind the peat stacks, crying for God to have mercy upon them. Revival had come. God came down and shook the little island of Hebrides. I've watched testimonies of people who saw the literal Shekinah, the glory of God descending and resting on houses, even as dishes clattered under the weight of the glory. The plates, the pots and pans were shaking in the houses as the glory of God fell. It was indeed heaven on earth. The revival lasted for two years. It said that over 90% of the island was saved. What happened to the other 10%? Man's heart can become so hard. Even the Christian heart can become hardened to the gospel. Hardened to the presence of God. And we do our token thing on a Sunday. I tell you, we are in a terrible condition in this nation. Unless the Lord visits us in revival, then what kind of a nation will our children and our grandchildren inherit? It took 70 years for the generation in Babylon to realize what they had lost the precious presence of the glory of God in Zion. But as they wept, God heard their cry and began to bring them back out of exile to rebuild the city walls, to rebuild the temple, to restore them. We have a God of restoration. It doesn't matter how many years the locusts have taken away. He's looking for a heart that's soft towards him. He's looking for eyes that weep and say, Lord, I need your presence. He's looking for a group of people who are willing to do anything 
to be in his presence. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Isaiah prayed, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. How then should we respond? Well, we must know that by ourselves we can do nothing. That our programs and our efforts are really meaningless. That we must cry out for his presence. So let us encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching. Uh, Perhaps the worship team would be kind enough to come and join me up here. We must keep praying. We must keep believing. We must keep trusting. We must keep obeying the Lord. In your quiet times, in your devotions, seek him. Take the time to wait on him. Call upon him. Join us, please. Um, Sunday mornings, we pray uh, in the creche area before the meeting, for half an hour before the meeting, that God would come upon us in the meeting, that we'd be moved in hearts and worship, that something would happen in the preaching of the word which would affect our souls, that we'd be touched, transformed, and changed into the likeness of Christ. Come and join us as we pray together, 8.45 to 9.15. Every other Tuesday, the first and the third Tuesday in the month, we come here and we pray. We have a prayer and praise night for an hour from 7 o'clock till 8 o'clock. Come and join us. If you're blind or disabled and you're in your 80s, pray in your cottage, pray in your apartment, pray for revival. But we need to do something. I don't want to continue the rest of my days on earth with nominal church and nominal church meetings. I'm talking about myself. Can't do that. Not what I've tasted is glory. Not what I've known something of the weight of his presence. Let's Father God, as we still our souls before you this morning, would you visit us? Lord, rend the heavens and come down, we pray. Touch us where we are. Lord, as we weep for the things that we've lost in the past, above all things, may we weep for your presence. May we weep for your glory. Change us this morning, we pray. Touch our minds, touch our hearts, touch our spirits. Affect us, we pray. Give us a hunger, O God, again for your presence. Lord, may we thirst for your righteousness once again. God, visit us, we pray. Spirit of the sovereign Lord, come upon us, we ask. Let's stand together. I realize this morning that some of these things I've mentioned will have affected you. Those who have lost family members, those who have children who are lost, those who have parents uh, that are stubborn, won't come to the Lord. Those who have 
loved ones, dear loved ones, who once knew Jesus and now it seems they're cold and estranged from him. Those who are in exile. If you need prayer this morning, we're going to open up the altar. The prayer team kindly come forward. If you need prayer this morning, if you feel this morning that suddenly you have a recognition of something which is lost in you, a moment in your life when you were so full of the Lord that you would do anything, you would go anywhere. And now it seems week by week we ask for volunteers. We know that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers ever are few. Why is that? Why is that? When the Almighty God is in the house, then surely we would do anything. We would go anywhere. We'd lay down our very lives for him. Lord, we need your presence again. We need a profound experience. We need revival in our own hearts. If you need to respond to that message this morning, then please just make your way now to the front. And we'll have our team come and pray for you. Pray for a fresh encounter of the presence of God. Lord, let your Shekinah glory cause these vessels to clatter, we pray. In Jesus' name. So as we begin to worship, if you need prayer, then please come forward. And our prayer team, come forward, please also. Let's step back in to worship.